outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Journey. Well, Kyle, looks like the holidays are upon us, eh? Oh my gosh, they are so upon us. I I saw this fun little calendar the other day that showed the month of November and December. And there was like, this whole month is all Christmas. And then there was like a little two-day spot in the two-month calendar that said, oh yeah, and Thanksgiving. Oh, um, But definitely the, the holidays are on us. There are lots of Christmas decorations that are already coming up in our area. They are. And I've got, I got some of Sarah's down on Sunday, ah, which okay. is really early for us, but I'm, uh, I'm on good behavior this year. One of the things Sarah Ooh. told me going through all that we've been through the last couple of years is two places where she recaptures the joy of childhood is mm-hmm. Disneyland and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of bah humbuggy about Christmas. I mean, I like the day, hate all the prep. Not yeah. hate it, but just I've gotten this persona of diminishing Christmas in my household. And since my wife told me this is where she recaptures her joy, I'm all in. I'm all in this year. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing the butt home buggy guy. I'm getting decorations down. We're getting things ready to go. And So are you going to have a different theme, like Christmas theme decoration type per garden? So like in the Hawaii garden versus the English garden versus the French garden? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to be that far into it, man. (laughs) I didn't change genders here, okay? I'm still a guy. Uh, Yeah, I don't think we've talked any discussion about decorating in the backyard. We're just going to... Okay. This is the first time we haven't been in a place where nobody drives by our house. So this is the first year in probably 16 years we're going to decorate a house on the outside. So Okay. And because the first Christmas here, we've got to figure out... I mean, Sarah's decorations all went for staircase, which we don't have anymore, and... 12-foot tree, which we don't have that ceiling space anymore. So things will definitely <laughs> change. And I'm not sure how yet, but uh, we got down our Christmas village because she wanted to begin to mess with that and where that goes and how it fits in. So, But I'm going to be a good guy this Christmas. I'm just going to be in it to win it and <laughs> whatever. I'm going to enjoy it with her and let her enjoy it without me being a drag on her her ship. So does does your neighborhood do a lot of, like, a lot of decorating, external decorating. Is that the a big deal in your new neighborhood? I don't know yet. Halloween was, okay. so I'm assuming Christmas probably will be. <laughs> Halloween was a big deal. Okay. Uh, so I'm assuming. I don't think it's one of those streets that you you know draw people into it because you've got a light on every leaf and and stick in the yard. But uh, I do think there's a little decorating that goes on, and we're trying to figure a way to do that. Which we think we've got a plan now where we can do that permanently. We can put the lights up. Hmm on the house in a way that we won't have to take them down and can actually use them for other things and will actually be hidden. So I'll let you know if it works, but if it does, (laughs) that'll be the best because we'll have them up. We don't have to mess with them ever again. Just turn them on when they're ready. And that'd be my favorite kind of Christmas decorations. Ooh, that's super interesting. I can't wait to see how that actually works out. But they're computerized, so we can change color. You could do, you know, a purple and pink theme for Easter or red and pink for Valentine's Day or red, white, and blue for July the 4th or Veterans Day. So it's got some some computerized, play with the iPhone, make it all whatever you need it to be for any kind of holiday. I like it. Yeah. Now, is the application like on the Grinch where she has basically a Gatlin gun that she shoots the lights onto the side of the house and they stick? Uh, I don't believe that's it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not it. 
<laughs> I'm sure it'll be a little more labor intensive than that, but we'll see. Uh, hopefully I'm not doing the labor. So that's another possibility of this thing. Okay. So best thing you heard this week. I'm vacillating between a number of them. One's kind of okay. backhanded, not life-changing, but just hilarious. Someone I know was having a conversation with their wife about her relationship to their daughter, which is a little manipulative, and was trying to help her back off just a tad. Uh, it's over a very specific thing. So he's trying to, okay. wife and daughter have not been communicating real well. And he finally connects with her. What she's doing is hurting their daughter. And she says, she starts crying. Oh, I'm such a lousy mother. I'm no good at this and that. And his response was this. Don't you dare make this about yourself. You're not the victim here. <laughs> oh, how did that go over? Uh, it took some smoothing over again. But I, I, I'm not <laughs> recommending that line. But I, I think that's a, a good way to look at things in our own life. When we get hurt or upset about something, it might be good to just pause and go, was I the victim here or the perpetrator? And if I was the mm. perpetrator, maybe I don't need to go down that self-loathing condemnation road. Maybe I can just back out a little bit and go, okay, I actually made someone else the victim. So maybe I don't take victim status right here. Maybe I take <laughs> uh, the way to love and apologize and walk into it in a very different way. But I, when, he, when he told me what he said to her, I thought, that is brilliant. Really, you're please don't go there. You're not the victim yeah. here. And this is the clarity of that and the recognition that, man, if I've done something to hurt somebody, that and I think it's a defense mechanism, it's a tool, right? Like I'm a bad guy, I'm a horrible person, I shouldn't have done it. All of a sudden I'm drawing the sympathy here instead of letting it go where it needs to, which is the person that got hurt. So I I, I thought it was actually the best thing I heard last week for sure. It's weird how young that starts, though. So we we had a situation <laughs> yes, with is. our our oldest daughter, Eliana, who is turning four in December, and there's an incident at preschool. Just keep in mind, she's going to hear this someday, Kyle. She might hear this someday. That's <laughs> okay. true. So there was an incident that she she got into with a a fellow student. This student wanted to be able to play with her. And at that time, Elle decided that she did not. And so she um, had a very strong reaction to said individual's presence and wanting to play with them and wasn't a good reaction and caused this poor, poor other student to start crying and to run off to the teacher and be in a bad space. Well, so then my daughter proceeds to go over and like distance herself from the rest of the group and sulk and start to cry a little bit. Um, because the teacher was reprimanding her for the way that she had treated this. And so then another like little friend walks over and is like consoling L because, oh my gosh, like even though she was the perpetrator, now her feelings are hurt. And uh, oh my gosh, I was just like, wow, they learned that stuff young. Like what the heck? <laughs> Learn it young and perfect it into adulthood. That seems to be the way we oh. play that game. Oh my gosh. It's a little scary. It is for sure. Um, so the best thing that I heard this week, I got permission from one of my clients to share this. We were we were discussing, uh, it was doing during some marital coaching stuff, and uh, we were discussing a relationship. And their comment was, and this I thought this was absolutely brilliant. I want to stop haunting my spouse with their old ghosts. Mm. 
that they recognize that that person, that their spouse was no longer the person that, that they had in their mind. And yet they were still haunting them with the ghosts of their past, of the, the personification or the ideas or the personality traits of their past, and that they were haunting their significant other with those old ghosts and not allowing their, their partner to move on. That idea, stop haunting them with their old ghosts, that has stuck with me since I've heard it. And that was about 10 days ago. It's easy to do in, in marriage, right? 10 days ago, it puts it right the Halloween season. That's perfect. You know, that I, I know <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> great, great, great theme there. No, it's easy to do in a marriage, right? Once you get ammunition on somebody and you just keep invoking it or putting them in a box that they used to be in and not have that sense of freshness and letting today be today and let it go on. It, and it's easy to pull out. Old stuff, not just with couples. I think families do it too. I, I had the thought this week of a situation that I've been through of thinking, you know, when your confidant becomes your accuser, they have all the information they need. I don't know if there's any greater betrayal than that. Someone you've been honest and open, who lived an open life with, and they decide to turn on you and and interpret everything you've done in the most negative light imaginable with the absolute certainty that they are right and I, in this case, or the other person is completely wrong about anything they say or do, cuts off all communication. When you, and that's kind of the same thing. The intimacy that marriage gives you, man, you can haunt somebody with old ghosts forever. You could. Yeah. And I love that. I love I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to lay that aside. It's such a major, grace, a major way to participate in grace. I had to pause for a second when this individual shared that with me and and my response back was, I don't know if you could say, honestly, I was like, I'm not sure if you could say any kinder word to your spouse than what that than what was encapsulated in that phrase. Because I think it too, it's, you know, even Jesus dealt with it, right? Where he went back to his town of origin and they're like, hold on, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus of Nat? Like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, this, this isn't who he is. You know, this is, this is how he lives out in the world. And yet it's so easy for us to to haunt others or the even the people that we love the most with the ghosts of their past instead of allowing them to walk in the freedom of who God's creating them to live in in the moment and celebrating that really enjoying that that wouldn't the accuser I mean that, that's just real fodder for the enemy too right doesn't he hound us with mistakes that yes. we made or aspects of our personality and as the older you get the more you look back on situations I do and go, Ooh, I really regret the way I responded right there. At the time, it felt so right, so good, so whatever. I mean, you can look back and see that without, without guilt or shame or condemnation. Just, mm. wow, that probably was not the best way to respond there. I'm glad I see it differently now. Yeah. But to constantly have the enemy use our past against us or a confidant to use our honesty and particularly when the confidant is when you've when, when you've confessed struggles that are then turned into accusations yes it's uh it's a it's a horrible place to be i think that's why people keep talking about all the courage sarah has to share her story mm -hmm. takes such courage and and it does if you worry about what other people are doing to stuff yeah, but once it no longer matters, hey, if people want to take my honesty or Sarah's and use it against us, and they have, 
That's their problem. That's on them. When that no longer defines you, when your public relations department can uh, <laughs> close <laughs> and you're okay with being misunderstood, and you're okay, especially when the misunderstanding is not just somebody misunderstood, somebody twisted something for an agenda. And you can chase that stuff your whole life long and lose. You, yeah. you lose fighting it. Because as I, as I say, your friends don't need to hear your defense, and those who are accusing you aren't going to believe it anyway. So save yourself the time of going down that dark road. See, and this is why for me, though, I am so, I guess my heart goes out so extensively to young people and to teens in today's world, is I don't know if they even get the chance. I honestly don't even know if they get the chance to learn how to do that, to allow the public relations side to come to a close. Because in in today's world, like as I'm talking to these young teens or, well, teens in general and young people, young adults, there's a lot of conversation about how they don't even start out trusting. They don't know what it means to trust or to have a confidant because they operate with this lens of, I know that if something goes wrong here, it's going to be blasted on social media. It's going to be used as ammunition against me. It's going to be weaponized against me. And so I just don't tell anybody. And it it's like, man, they, they don't even get to start with an understanding of what it means to have a confidant and the incredible value that that has to be able to trust someone with that information and then be able to hold that for you. And even, even if there is relational issues you're not blasting the other person. I was working with a couple the other day where their comment independently, both was, I'm not going to trash my my significant other. I'm not going to speak ill of them. Like that's, whether they do or not, I don't want to do that because I care too much for that individual. To even be in conflict with somebody and not betray their trust, not weaponize the things that they've shared with you, like that, that is commonplace now with under 25. It's just as commonplace. It's not even a it's not even a question mark. It's something that they're planning on and that they sculpt their their life around. And that breaks my heart. It is hard not to have someone or someone's in your life that you can trust to hold your stuff with with confidence, with graciousness and with kindness. It really is. But I I look yeah. at that age in my own life, <laughs> not necessarily in the social media climate of today, but I, teenage relationships, by definition, almost are relationships of convenience, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't mm. anticipate. I wouldn't think finding a teenage friend that could hold your darkest stuff and not turn it against you. Should the winds of uh, the social clicks change on camera, even pre, pre social media, pre internet days? I, I think mm. often people relationships were as capricious as the wind. If I could be in this group, which I, really, I can't be in that group, so I'm in this group now, and then I get the door to that group, and then I've got to shun this group to get in that group. It just, hmm. I think youth have always done that, unfortunately. I watched that with my kids. Uh, I watch them fall in and out of certain groups, and for a time you're admired and loved, and this, really appreciated, and you kind of get comfortable in that. And the next day you get stabbed in the back by the whole group, hmm. the whole Mean Girls thing that was in... Uh, and a movie made of it and all that. Yeah. It it's a real thing. It's always been a real thing. I, I hopefully if you're young, if you're in your teens, if you know, find an adult that can hold your stuff mm -hmm. that you could trust, that you would and I, again, we don't do much. I when I was pastoring, we tried to build what we called intergenerational friendships all the time because it was very valuable, yep. I thought. 
that have other adults to go to. And my kids, they had that, you know, there's one, one dilemma in high school where a little tension between us and our daughter. And uh, we finally just, and we were just weren't cool. Weren't good. We just said, you know, why don't you spend some time with Jen, a friend of ours who was in her young twenties, but we knew, we knew her, we knew she, and we knew Julie and her had a great relationship. We said, why don't you just go spend some time with yeah. her? And she did. She came back a different person. She came mm-hmm. back really different towards Sarah and I, because we knew this gal would have our back, but also would have our daughter's heart. And uh, mm-hmm. those relationships are valuable, yeah. but they're not easy to cultivate. And I think if you're a young teen, early 20s, you really do want to, or older teen, younger 20s, find find a significant, whether it's coach, teacher, mentor, friend, uncle, make sure they're safe. Make sure they're safe people. Yeah. You know, because I, I just, that that's the whole other thing that makes adult relationships really creepy with kids is because of all the, the accusations that fly around about that stuff. But I think it'd be yeah. hard to find uh, someone in their late teens, early twenties, who would be a safe confidant. See, and it's interesting because that's when, that's when my core group of guys got built. So the people that I have done life with for nearing 20 years were largely developed from 18 to to 23 and they're with people in that same age demographic now granted i have other friendships that i've cultivated over the years that are with people that are a lot older than i am um which i deeply love and i deeply appreciate and especially now as a as a parent as a husband having that wisdom and that insight is so incredibly invaluable but also having peers that are similar age group that are like they can lament like oh my gosh yes like like are you done with the to- the toddler chaos and I'm like yes like please for the love of God like I can't take this anymore um, <laughs> and just you know being able to lament in that and share that with us but then having the value of the older generation that can say this too shall pass treasure it stay in it with them you're going to miss these days in the next decade like hang in there you know kind of a thing and oh man and so i think so my my supervisor used this term the diversified therapeutic web of support wow the diversified and, therapeutic web of support yes okay and she talked about how this she cultivated this idea about how how the more diversified relationships that we have that have that deep level of trust that have that confidant that have you know those some of them might be specialists so some of them might be a therapist or a life coach or a pastor or you know whatever that might be but a lot of them are just friends or teachers or coaches or whatever that might be and yet the more diversified that therapeutic web of support is the higher level of resilience people are found to have and so as as you're intentionally cultivating, you know, friendships with your peers, friendship with older adults, friendships with people who are newlyweds, friendships with people who are, have been married for 50 years, you know, that having that diversified perspective of relationship drastically increases resiliency um, and also increases overall mental health. And so this is just a really interesting idea because I, I, I really appreciate and I like what you said about finding somebody who's older to be a confidant for you, but I feel like it'd be discouraging if you couldn't find somebody that, a similar age that you could also trust too. Maybe not with your deepest, darkest things, but at least to be able to create some parallels of trust with one another. Just, just realize you don't want to share anything that if it got out would be destructive to you, particularly with people yes. that age. 
Yeah, no, that's very true. I, I agree with you. I think many of my long-term relationships came out of my college years, which would have been 18, 19 to 21, 22. Yeah. And I, those friendships have maintained many of them through a lifetime of love and support and kindness and all. And, uh, but that's been an ever acting, that's been a forever changing nature of relationships for me. It has. Mm. And in, in addition to that, I would say there's also, someone's asked me the other day, Wayne, where do you, where did, what books did you read that most shaped your life? My answer is always, it was not books. It was people. God's provided, yeah. whether it was the Dave, Dave Coleman during the, the time when the whole church chapter of my life, in quotes, the religious institutional kinds of elements was coming unraveled, and I was being betrayed. He was there. And then Kevin Smith from Australia at a time when I was really learning trust and God in a way I'd not learned before. He was there. And then learning some things about grace, Tom Moan out of Tulsa and all three of those guys have died in the last three years, one of them just recently. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, it's caused me to really pause and go, it was amazing. Because none of these relationships that I see somebody, I want to mentor me and go chase them down or whatever. Th those relationships came to me organically, and they started with just kind of getting to know each other. It didn't start with any kind of overtones to it. But all three of those, and there's probably four more that over the course of life, and they weren't all there at the same time. So when I was going through a difficult season of my life, God provided somebody to walk with me through that. And I went to another, mm -hmm. God provided someone else to walk with me through that. And I look back mm -hmm. at that as the best heritage of my life. And I tell younger people, and even in their 30s and 40s, you've got somebody like that around you, most likely, if, if you're open mm -hmm. and listening and hearing and just saying, God, who can, walk, who can I walk alongside right now? And don't ruin the relationship by going to him and say, hey, will you mentor me? Just, just pursue the relationship. And oftentimes when somebody's 15 to 20 years your senior, you'll need to pursue it more than they will. They're not going to come at you a lot because like, who wants to spend time with an older an old goat? That's, that's how older people tend to think of it. So in all those relationships, when there was an initial connection and there was some sense in my heart that this is – there's some depth here I would like to hang out near that I mostly did the pursuing. I mostly invited out. I mostly, because I wanted to cultivate that relationship. And I, and I guess I would say, honestly, there's probably some of those I tried to cultivate that didn't work out there were, and didn't work out. Not necessarily because they weren't willing. Sometimes you got yeah. a little closer to the relationship and went, yeah, this is not something that's going to be helpful to me. Um, but you don't know if you don't taste, you know, if you don't go down the buffet Correct. table and go, okay, I'll, I'll scoop of this. And then I may come back for the rest of it <laughs> off the buffet <laughs> table. But me, I'm a taster first. I want to see if that is really as good as it looks. And then if it is, I'll come back. Those relationships to me, I just, I, one of them passed away last week. So I'm really aware of this now of just how much I appreciated God bringing them into my life in the season that he did. And how absolutely grateful I am for what they poured into my life and what we shared in terms of friendship and relationship. It's really intriguing to me how God uses the diversity of human relationship to be able to draw us into a deeper experience of him. Because I, I would agree, Wayne, there's a, there's a legacy that has been throughout my life of people that sometimes have just been in, in my life for a strategic season. They were very intentional and very powerful with a certain message or a certain thing that God was doing in my life at that time. 
And then others have stuck. Like others are are there and they're there for the long haul. And and you don't know which ones are going to fall into those categories. And and especially like for me, my initial tendency was like, well, should I hold back, you know, if if this is just going to be, you know, a shorter or just for a season or whatever. And yet it's like, man, that I would miss the beauty of of the relationship that was to be found with that person. But also it's okay, like not not panicking or or I guess succumbing to this urgency of I have to have community, I have to have these friendships to where you squash the friendship or you strangle it or you hold on to something so tightly. It's like, no, that, that was a beautiful friendship. I love that I got to have that opportunity. They've moved on. I've moved on. There was no ill deed in between us. It just got life took us on to a different season. And that's okay, too. It is. It is. And to be able to celebrate the beauty of that and the treasures that yeah. we gain from those relationships. And hopefully, and I think all the ones I look at were mutual. So I, I feel like they would say, mm -hmm. too, but there were treasures in that relationship for me. That's what made it really good. We get together and, oh my gosh, share this and then share that. And then, so it was, they were not, they were mutual. They were not one-way relationships. Yeah. And having those in my life, that, that's been the major thing that changed me. And you can't have, I love, I love that diversified too. So as we have as a society more siloed ourselves into people who think like us, that's not always the best environment in which to discover truth. Like my little my yeah. pool, little pool of thought is so good that I can only be with people who see it the same way I do. Because then I, I think what I have been rewarded by is all of those men that I would go back and think about, all of them saw things a little bit differently. Yeah. And it was the, the t it, it was the common things underneath the differences that seemed more godlike. And maybe that's the manifold wisdom of God made available through the church, mm -hmm. through the diversity of insights and relationships and things that give greater weight to what's true and beautiful and wonderful. I think that's how it worked for me. And I would say, so the diversity is real important. And I get, I get email all the time yeah. saying, Wayne, can you help me find like-minded believers? And my answer is, maybe that's not what you want. Because if you find like-minded believers, then you're frozen in the space you're at right now. And you're all going to sit there and have this mutual support club of our common bias or whatever, our, our common dysfunction. The diversified is really an important part of that statement. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those moments where God's graciously not answering our prayer, right? Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, praying that our prison cell becomes more comfortable, because part of getting out of that prison cell is having different vantage points, different perspectives, different life experiences, different worldviews, and being able to enjoy that and and even allow ourselves to be challenged by that in a good way and not, not repel it, not move away from it. And, and it's hard because I feel like largely, and this isn't always the case because I have some very dear friendships that came as a result of a traditional Sunday morning gathering, institutional type setting. Um, but in general, I feel like it teaches more one-way relationships than it does that mutual mutual relationship um, or back and forth relationship. I, th I think so. Because I think in conformity-based environments, there are people who do the conformity better than others who don't. And there's kind of a hierarchy that sets up. And I've even heard it said, you know, I, I was told the first place I pastored, I would not be allowed to have friends there. And I went, what? Hmm. Yeah, you can't have friends because 
then there'll be competitions and jealousies and blah, blah, blah. Instead of, which I didn't follow that, unfortunately. I mean, fortunately, I didn't follow it. Because I think it's important that we have those mutual leveled kinds of relationships. And when the expert thing kicks in and you're you're mentoring downward or being mentored upward, it, it's kind of a faked up relationship a little bit. It's not It's not what it was meant yeah. to be. So the mutuality is important. The diversity is important. All those things are great to have an environment in which we can grow. And then to be curious and inquisitive and to be more open to what input's coming my way and listening and hearing and assessing and holding on to it instead of I just need validation, which is the worst kind of relationships, right? I just need somebody to validate my biases and validate the level of growth I have. If it's not challenging, if people don't ask me to think beyond what I already know and believe, then I'm going to stagnate. And that's part of the conformity thing, too. It's not only that the, the, the relationship is somewhat stratified, so there's up and down like you're talking about. I think mm-hmm. there's also the lack of diversity in it. It's We have to agree to the code, and if you violate the code or you violate the conformity need, now you're regarded with suspicion. So we've it's the worst possible world in which to actually have growth. See, and it's interesting. So this week, in one of my sociology classes, we're talking about deviance and social control. And this is literally the definition of deviance is any attitude, behavior, or condition that violates cultural norms or social laws and results in the disapproval, hostility, or sanction if it becomes known. Mm. And I just like, I think about that and it's like, I want attitudes and behaviors and ideas and thoughts to challenge or to quote to use that definition to violate social norms because especially with where we're at today and and we're going to be talking in the class about siloing information and they're going to have to do a research project on how to how to break out of those silos and what does that look like because they're now we're living in a society where there is large conglomerates of people that are financially benefiting substantially and benefiting through power substantially by siloing people in these little fo- these spaces where there isn't the diversity, where there, it is only like-mindedness. And to ask, well, where are all the like-minded people? It's a bit of a spooky question. I mean, I understand the heart behind it, but like you said, if I'm only living in a world where I'm living with like-minded people, and I use air quotes around that, yeah. uh, then, then it, Am I going to get out of those old pathways? Am I going to get out of those old ideas? Am I going to get out of those old ruts that are not healthy, that are not beneficial, that that because of the diversity that's in my life, there are invitations into a deeper, more wholehearted experience in Father's love? But if I only stayed within this certain lane, would I ever even get challenged out of that? Would I ever even be able to see that different vantage point? Especially when you read that definition of deviance and social control or whatever that that describes by almost definition most religious institutions they start with the conformity they start with even down to what books you're allowed to read and not read and you're not allowed to consider i mean i still think back to the the group of kids that got thrown out of a bible college because they were reading 
computer printed dot matrix prints of so you don't want to go to church anymore when the book was still online and not yet published and they were passing it through the dorm a group of kids were like yeah and they had actually signed a covenant not to read any outside literature while they're going through the bible bible school because oh my god we don't want any competition with how we're trying to indoctrinate you and I mean, it's overt that way. And I think in, in religious institutions, one of the things that scares people is there's somebody in here who's deviating from the norm and then they're deviants. And so the terminology immediately goes to if anybody thinks critically or independently or would even shed light on maybe the thing we've done for the last 500 years may have some deficiencies, may not be complete. Then that kind of undermines the whole experts who are basically farming a way of doing Christianity that they've agreed on that's unique and special to our group of people, which makes us better than that other group of Christians down the street somewhere. And they want to control everything. It's the nature of cults mm -hmm. to actually encourage, yes. don't be near anybody that doesn't agree with what you believe. Yeah. And and it's, it's a threat. <laughs> Absolutely. Instead of it being... Uh, and I think part of that is, again, why people ask me for like-minded people is because I know you grew up in an environment where being like-minded was a value. And then yeah. your conscience, your the, the work of the Holy Spirit began to move you outside of that. It became uncomfortable there. You became a threat there. You might have, if you asked too many questions or shared too many things, now, you, now you're identified, you're spotlighted, sometimes even marginalized from the pulpit, especially after you leave, you'll be marginalized in gossip because nobody else there yes. wants them thinking like you. So the first thing you want when you've been schooled in validation is you're going to seek relationships that now validate your new perspective. And the same danger exists there. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to form another club that we have the anti-conformity-based dynamic, but we've still codified that into some kind of conformity way of thinking. I've, I've seen the grace teaching thing go that way. There's a conformity of language among, is there litmus testing you out to see if uh, you really do believe in grace or if you've got any kind of work thing going on in there? And I've seen it with them. They just form their own thing, and conformity to the doctrine is the value instead of, no, the value is in following Jesus. The value is in knowing that you don't know everything you need to know. And if you don't keep growing, keep seeing, keep discovering, you'll stagnate into the thing we all hate, which is my, my Christian life just becomes this boring routine I'm having to follow that doesn't work for me. Yes. Because God's invited you beyond it. And you're going to need to get beyond it to negotiate the stuff in your life God's wanting you to negotiate. The old stuff doesn't work. So I need to show you what that stuff really means so that you can come into a different way of living. And that still continues to this day. I wouldn't say to this day, yeah, I've got it all figured out now. I, I know exactly how I would curriculum out a discipleship that's going to help somebody no matter what situation they face. They don't need Jesus anymore because I've got the rules all worked out for them. I just, the whole idea of that just makes my, my yuck meter go to threat level <laughs> throw up. And uh, to, to say, no, the, the real value here is learn to follow, learn to listen, learn to change and grow as God brings new wisdom into your life and stuff he wants to do in you. And when you stop doing that, the Christian life just becomes an onerous boring chore to try and keep doing till the end of the age or before I die. So I at least get into heaven kind of thing instead of, no, I want to be a growing human being. 
I want to learn to know God in this age. I want to keep discovering where my life needs to change to make more room for him and his truth to walk with me. I love that. I, the, man. Okay. So this, this might uh, really hammer some things, but we'll see what kind of response this comes up with. But, but how we need to be like-minded, man. That's the whole, we should call it the like-minded podcast. Kyle and I never disagree because that would be bad. (laughs) Well, just the, the, how, how many times I have heard the statement proper theology or proper doctrine as a, as basically as a code term for brainwashing or in, or, you know, the, this idea of no, get on board us versus them, etc. And they're like, well, no, we, we have proper theology. We have the proper theology. We have the proper doctrine. And they're, but then very quickly, when you adhere to their proper doctrine or their proper theology, all of a sudden you quickly find out that there isn't room for change or growth or learning because they've already got, like you said, they've already got it figured out. So they already, they already know. So what else is there to discover? What else is there to learn? What else is there to explore? And yet it's like, I've, I've heard that term of proper theology or proper doctrine used so many times as a way of shutting down the curious, shutting down the, the exploration, shutting down that intrigue, that sense of awe, and moving a person back into conformity, back into line, back into the us versus them. And it just, man, it is, it's heartbreaking. It's saddening. To me, this is what this podcast has been about from the beginning. It's, it's not about proper doctrine. It's not about the, the important rituals. It really is about how do I connect with and follow Jesus through the course of my life? And yeah. people who have substituted following Jesus for a doctrine or practice, a ritual, that they think is meaningful to them, then you're going to guard that thing with your life. You're going to feel like I've got it right, mm-hmm. and people who don't see it my way are wrong because my God is my doctrine. And that doctrine can even be right, Ooh. and you be the most arrogant person on the planet. And that, to me, when I talk about these people that have been in my life that have been wonderful life shapers for me in helping me discover who God is and growing in Him. One of the things that's at the root of all those lives is when it was amazingly gracious humility. They would never mm-hmm. top down. They'd get on a pedestal. They would jump. If you put them on one, they'd jump off. It was, it was the humility of going, okay, this is what I see at this point in my journey. Yeah. And people who come at me with, you know, you know what the right answer is here? I'm already turned off to whatever they're going to say next. And the theology may be right. I know lots of people who have very right theology, but have no life in them. Yes. Like Paul would have said, the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They, they have the outward form right. They can fight doctrine. They can, But when you get to know them as people, there's no curiosity. There's no humility. There's no sense of Jesus in their life bigger than them. So the mystery of, I don't even know what to say about this yet, because me and Jesus are still sorting it out. They don't have those moments, because they, they go to... Uh, proof text of some kind, quote a scripture, that's the way it is. And even when it doesn't work for them, they have an amazing sense of denial to go, the scripture I'm quoting doesn't even work for me. 
but I still believe it the way I've interpreted it all my life because I have found security in my doctrine, not in this, not in the person of Christ and not in the Holy Spirit still inviting me today into his glory. I, I tell you, if I'd been on that train my whole life, particularly the last two years, I don't think I would have survived the last two years. If Jesus wasn't a real presence in the brokenness and pain of life and the disappointments, and when things don't go the way doctrine should say they would go, and, and there's so much that the doctrine can be true, but how we're applying it can be totally false, and it can mm -hmm. fall apart in our hands, and then we can't see it because denial runs strong among these who found doctrine to be their security or theology instead of Christ. It, I mean, it circles back to what we were talking about even two weeks ago about certainty and the seduction of ultimate certainty, where, yes, they, I mean, living in tension, living in unknown, living in curiosity, yeah, that can be tiring at times, this unfold, this constant unfolding and exploration. Absolutely. It could be more the, the allure of going over to the ultimate certainty and the draw that that has. Absolutely. And yet, man, it snuffs out life so quickly. Because like you said, if you don't have that humility, if you don't have the curiosity, if you're not still learning and still discovering, then where is the life at? Because I feel like that's where life is. That's where I, I'm experiencing new outpourings of God's heart for me. And, and it's ever growing as I'm changing as a, as a passionate follower of his. So if I was if I was still dwelling on the things that I learned 10 or 15 years ago with him and just was still there, oh my gosh, I would have missed out on so much over the last 15 years. And it's not that the things that I learned back then aren't good, that didn't, weren't foundational in where I'm at today. And yet if I made that my doctrine and stayed there, I would not be in very good shape. And I definitely wouldn't be sitting here as a college professor doing what I love doing. Yeah. You know? and so yeah. it's like... Yeah. And I, to me, that's the flop. To, for me, certainty used to be a value. I loved certainty, having all the ducks in a row. And then when God kept breaking out of my boxes, certainty became not an attractant to go back to. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Egypt. I, I wouldn't go back there for, because none of it worked. I could be certain about things and then pray in certain ways and those things wouldn't happen. And then I'd go, okay, so certainty, certainty takes a whole lot of cognitive dissonance to stay in because it doesn't work. Yeah. And the mystery of watching God unfold works. God can take a number of different directions in anything I'm going through or people I'm trying to help. And that, to me, that's breathtaking. I, I don't find certainty an attractant anymore. <laughs> I don't. I'm willing to live inside the mystery of God's unfolding glory in the circumstances I'm in and the people I love. That makes me think of this. I saw this meme the other day that said, uh, my doc, my ducks aren't in a row. They're not even in the same pond. And I started laughing at that. That's good. And I was like, I, yeah. I would rather, I would rather hang out with that person. The ducks aren't in a row. They are, are acknowledging that their ducks aren't even in the same pond. Then the person that's like, yeah, I got my ducks in a row and look at how well they perform. They're following me perfectly like a little mom should. You know? Yeah, my so. ducks are all in a row, but only in my imagination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not in reality. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. 
You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 